My name is Sean Holman. I'm the Wayne Crooks Professor of Environmental and Climate Journalism at the University of Victoria, and I'm also founding director of the Climate Disaster Project, an international teaching newsroom that works with climate disaster affected communities to share and investigate their stories. In 2019, the Oxford word of the year was climate emergency. Okay, so Oxford scholars are clearly better with words than numbers, because that'd be two words, but we get the point. Welcome to SCANA, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Today, we're talking climate, because when we're covering threats to life on our planet made of oceans, this would be the proverbial 800-pound gorilla or the eight-ton Kraken. I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is the place where I usually talk about my books, my movies about whales and sharks. But besides writing books and plays and making movies, I also teach writing at the University of Victoria. And I've been trying to help out one of the other professors in the writing department with a vital project he created to raise awareness about our climate emergency in ways that will actually connect with people and make a difference. I've known Sean Holman for ages. I've been a fan of his work even longer. Sean has an astonishing eye for news, and his coverage of British Columbia politics was essential reading. When he became a professor at Mount Royal College, his commentaries on the media, especially on the media and climate, helped shape the Canadian conversation. Yeah, I'm still a fan. Sean's also a generous soul, and he helped walk me through my first ever Freedom of Information request when I was looking for what was really going on with Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans when the southern resident orca, Scarlet, died. But that's another podcast. Or six. A few years ago, Sean became the Wayne Crooks Professor in Environmental and Climate Journalism and launched the Climate Disaster Project. For this recording, we are testing out some new software in the hopes that it will make it easier to deliver more episodes more often. If you're happy with how this sounds and our producers are happy, we'll talk about it in future episodes. The only audio warning I know is Sean's computer beeped just as he was finishing a really interesting thought. I was okay with the beeps. I hope you are too. If you'd like to help us share more stories like this, and that story about Scarlet that I really want to tell, please join Scanna's pod at patreon.com or become a paid subscriber on Substack. The sharing is more important than ever right now because we're pretty sure that Google and Facebook are going to declare us Canadian news, and that means our links will disappear from their pages. So please share our episodes and follow us on whichever social media platform doesn't make you feel too icky when you use it. We're still on all of them, even though I pretty much always feel like I need a shower after I spend more than 60 seconds on Twitter. Our Patreon patrons do get all sorts of cool perks, including bonus content from interviews, sneak peeks at our ocean-related projects, like our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and my next book, which is all about octopus. You can also support us by buying my books about whales and sharks, or my books that aren't about whales and sharks, which tend to be funnier. Also, 
my audiobooks. Really, seriously, check out the audiobooks because clearly you're into audio and I produce and own my own audiobooks. And now, true stories about fighting fires with facts and finding hope in climate disasters with Sean Holman. Awesome. So I always knew you as a political journalist until I saw this open letter that you wrote. And I'd really like to kick off with that because I felt like it was a call to action and a call to arms in terms of climate coverage across the country and beyond. Can you talk about what prompted that? And please explain what you were trying, what you said in the open letter. Yeah. So I spent 10 years as an investigative journalist before I got into academia. And as an academic, one of the things that I became really interested in is why we value information in democracies. So where does that historically come from? And after doing a whole bunch of historical research, primary research into this particular question, focusing on the post-war period, what I came to the conclusion is that we value information for two reasons. One is control and the other is certainty. Control, the idea is that if we can use information, we can make better decisions about the world around us, thereby controlling public and private institutions. And we can also use that information to feel more certain about the world around us because we can better understand the past, we can better understand the present, and we can better anticipate the future. So these two things, control and certainty, are sort of why we value information in democracies from the post-war period onwards. But what's really interesting from the standpoint of climate change and from the standpoint of climate coverage is this sort of value of control and certainty is why we do what we do in the news media, right? We give information so people can exert control and feel more certain. But what was really troubling to me was that the news media wasn't doing that when it came to the biggest story of our time, which is climate change. And that was dramatically demonstrated to me during the 2017 wildfire season in British Columbia where you had these really severe wildfires, these really severe forest fires, all this wildfire smoke that was billowing across the Rockies and, and into Alberta. And even though we know that climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of these kinds of wildfires, there is a big failure on the part of the news media to make that climate connection. And as a result of not being not making that climate connection, it was very difficult then for anyone reading the news media to feel certain and in control about that particular situation because they didn't know what was causing these fires. So your open letter, what can you talk about what you said in that that sparked so much response? Yeah, so I wrote an open letter uh, a couple of years later in the Taiyi, uh, as you mentioned, that really called on 
journalists across Canada to do better when it came to climate coverage. And I called on the news media to make that climate connection in their coverage. I called on the news media to really contextualize their climate coverage, to really localize their climate coverage, and to really give climate coverage prominence in their respective outlets. Because as I say, this is the biggest story of our time. And if you know we use information to uh, provide control and certainty for us, we're really failing as members of the news media for not providing the complete story when it comes to climate change. How can we expect people to take individual or collective climate actions if we do not give people the information they need to understand how our world is unraveling as a result of the consequences of a warming world? Well, I mean, isn't a lot of that the game that journalists are taught to play where you have to find an opposing side even if there isn't one? Not really, because in this particular circumstance, um, there has been a situation where you know climate change has been proven um, to be the result of human activity uh, beyond any kind of reasonable doubt, any kind of reasonable doubt. There, we have reached what scientists call the five sigma level of certainty when it comes to climate change, which means there's like a 99.999997 somewhere down the line uh, percent chance that the evidence that humans are responsible for global warming is correct. So we know, right, that climate change is happening. We know that humans are causing it. And we know that that is increasing the frequency and severity of these kinds of weather-related natural disasters. So, you know, yes, as you mentioned, right, you know, there is sort of a tendency in the news media to um, want to, uh, you know, present both sides, but there isn't actually another side in this particular circumstance. There's also a tendency in the news media to want to know for a fact, right, that something is happening. That, you know, for example, the 2017 wildfire season in British Columbia was, for a fact, the result of climate change. Um, but the challenge with that is that um, attribution science really lags behind current events. So what do I mean by that? That means by the time we figure out that climate change is responsible for a particular weather-related natural disaster, the news cycle has already substantially moved on. So that creates a real problem. Um, but what we can say is that these kinds of weather-related natural disasters are increasing in frequency and severity as a result of climate change. We don't know necessarily always whether any particular event is the result of climate change, but we do know that these events are increasing as a result of climate change. Well, it's just, when I did, I remember doing stories early, you know, uh, environmental stories, and being asked to interview people who had no, either no background, no actual credibility, and this wasn't just climate coverage. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of a couple of stories without, drifting off into long anecdotes where I remember the first one, it really hit me. 
Uh, I was doing a story on the Vancouver Aquarium. I was told to interview a particular organization. And I did what I thought was standard due diligence, which was asking, how many people belong to your organization? And realized the answer was likely zero. Mm -hmm. And that I was interviewing somebody with a business card. Yep. And who'd created a name for their organization and a business card. Yep. And I was floored that when I reported that to McLean, so I was working for, they went, yeah, we don't care. And I had a conversation with another editor. He's like, yeah, yeah, but they offer the other side. I went, they are the other side. You're creating the illusion of another side. And I know that was a big part of really climate coverage, but there were so many stories where I just asked the question, how many people belong to your organization? And the answer was zero on organizations that are quoted all of the time by Canadian mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, it's one of the reasons I got less and less comfortable practicing traditional journalism yeah. was I felt like I was playing this bizarre game where I was pretending that there were two sides speaking in cases where there weren't. Absolutely. And it's really troubling, right? That sort of both sideism and it has contributed to our real failure, right? To take action on climate change with the urgency it demands. This pollution of the public sphere, of the public square, um, with propaganda, propaganda that is untrue. The one that rocked my world was discovering that the whole concept of personal carbon footprint was created by an oil company to take the heat off oil companies. Yeah, although, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the carbon footprint. I think we have not really done a very good job as a society to recognize that this is both an individual problem and a collective problem. It is both these things. So, you know, as you mentioned, right, you know, carbon footprint, right, is sort of on the, on the side of the personal responsibility, right? We all have personal responsibility for these things. But then you take the other extreme, right, which is it's all the fault of government or corporations, um, which is sort of the position that a lot of environmental organizations take. But the... There's some deleterious consequences of sort of taking that position. The first consequence is that it makes it seem like you can really do nothing yourself about climate change because you're basically saying, okay, it's all governments and corporations, right? It's, it's people who are outside of our control, right? It's a problem that's too big to attack. When in actuality, there is actually a lot that we can individually do about climate change. Um, creating collective action around that. You know, so as an example, in the United States, if everyone switched, right, from eating beef to beans, the United States would have actually met its greenhouse gas emission targets that were set by Obama. I mean, that's, that's an example, right, of how our own personal responsibility can make a difference. That's not to absolve governments and corporations from action. They need to create action too. They need to take action too. But governments and corporations are also a collective sum of our individual decisions that we make. It's both. 
And it is, I think, sometimes very convenient for the environmental movement to sort of stress corporations and uh, governments because that lets individuals off the hook. People don't really like sometimes hearing that they are also responsible for climate change. This is the thing about climate change. We are, many of us, right? Almost all of us are climate disaster, climate change survivors in one way, shape, or form. But many of us are also perpetrators of climate change as well in our individual lives. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Now, before anybody who's listening to Scan is going, can you, anything about orcas, oceans, octopus, whales? Can we talk a little bit about what climate issues are affecting the oceans and how? Because you're talking about climate disasters. And I know that people see fires as the, you know, they're the most visible and the best to cover in media because you can see fires. Fires look really good on camera. Can we talk a little bit about what's happening to our oceans, our lakes, and ice? Absolutely. So as a result of climate change, we are seeing uh, rising sea levels uh, across the world, and we are going to see rising sea levels across the world. We're also going to see ocean acidification, destruction of coral reefs uh, as a result of climate change. And we're going to be seeing storm surges as a result of climate change. We're going to be seeing a whole host of effects that are going to impact uh, our oceans, going to impact our bodies of water as a result of climate change. However, I think it's also really important within that framework to consider what that means when it comes to human impacts of climate change. What does that mean when it comes to us? Because the environmental movement historically has done a lot to talk about sort of the impact that these kinds of changes are going to have on nature and species other than humans, right? And uh, the environmental movement has done a lot to talk about sort of the impacts that climate change will have on environmental spaces. But it is really important to also consider the impact that this will have on us as a people, us as humans. And I think it has been a mistake that we have not talked more about that when it comes to climate coverage, for example, and when it comes to the environmental movement in general. You know, when the environmental movement was sort of at its high watermark during the 1970s, for example, there was a lot of focus on the impact that various different human-made measures were having on other humans, right? And, and we really need to remember that right now. So when it comes to, for example, the oceans, when it comes to rising sea levels, when it comes to rising these storm surges, what that means is that people around the world, millions of people, are going to be displaced by climate change. They're going to lose their homes as a result of climate change. They are going to lose the places they grew up as a result of climate change. And millions of people are going to be on the move as a result of the changes that are going to be taking place to our oceans. And that will have severe consequences for society. You're going to be seeing migration like the world has never before seen, except during times of war. 
And that is going to have really severe consequences for all of our societies that we have not really fully thought through and not really have fully appreciated yet. I worked on a documentary called How to Boil a Frog, which was about which was a climate change uh, documentary, and I was asked to put together an animation showing projections for worst case or best case even for what we're seeing in climate change. And I thought, okay, I this was when there was still at least some consensus around what a fact was, mm-hmm. but I thought. I'm going to go to sources that people who watch Fox News will accept as legit sources. So I went to the Pentagon projections and the insurance company projections for climate disasters. And it is absolutely nightmarish, the scenarios they've got. It's like, in such and such a year, we're going to stop insuring such and such a country because it will no longer be viable because of rising sea levels. In such and such a year, we are projecting war. Yeah. Right? This is, you know, these ain't the Greenpeace stats. These are the Pentagon stats. These aren't, you know, Dogwood and, you know, Paul Watson numbers. These are insurance company numbers. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, this documentary was a while ago, and the numbers were just mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's many parts of society that, you know, aren't environmentalists that are very concerned about this, right? Banks and insurance companies, right? whole entire financial industry is extremely concerned about climate change and the impact that it's going to have on the global economy, impact that it's going to have on you know, workspaces and places. The impact that it's going to have on on how our society works. Religions are very concerned about climate change. The Pope has spoken out repeatedly, right, about the impact that climate change is going to have. And you know who else is also concerned about climate change? Oil and gas companies. They are very concerned about climate change. And they are very concerned about what it means for their industry. These are all people who are not environmentalists, not environmentalists at all, right? And they are very concerned (laughs) about what a warming world is going to do to them and what the impact of moving away from a fossil fuel economy, right, is going to mean and what the necessity of that means for them. Now, almost everyone that I've spoken to who has taken on climate as an issue has had a moment that, like Sapporo Berman referred to it as her climate reckoning. They've, uh, John Cooks, you did How to Boil a Frog at a similar moment where it was just like the height of environmental grief. Did you have one moment where you went, oh, wow, I've been covering politics? Because I mean, I, I knew you as like, the amazing political reporter covering the beast legislature. And then suddenly I see you writing about climate. Was there a moment? Was there an incident? What prompted the shift for you? It was that 2017 wildfire season, right? It really was right. And 
to be in my apartment in Calgary and to look outside the window and think that I was seeing fog. And it wasn't fog. It was wildfire smoke. And then to go outside and expect that it would feel like fog, wet, the feeling of home, right? The West Coast. And to feel it be dry instead. And then the smell, right, of campfire, which I have very positive associations with. But suddenly something that shouldn't be there, right? So all of these sort of positive associations, the smell of campfire, the appearance of fog became something that was undesirable, became something that was threatening. And it was very interesting because I, I connected that, right? Because I had, we had to stay indoors for a number of days as a result of that wildfire smoke. To then connect that to um, actually a book I read when I was young. It was called Future Cities. There was this whole entire, you may remember this, Mark, this whole entire sort of futurism movement, right? During you know, the late 70s, early 80s, right? This is where Omni Magazine comes out, um, where there was sort of a lot of looking towards the future and a lot of looking towards what the future might be looking like and a lot of hope, right, for what that future could be. But I remember I had this book called Future Cities. It was published by Osborne Books. And it had at the back of it uh, two illustrations, um, which were two trips to the 21st century. And it illustrated both of them. The first was a world of, you know, um, monorails and green cities and, and, uh, and electric cars. Because, of course, what is the future without an electric car and a monorail, right? But the second was to sort of a polluted pestle planet where people were forced to wear pollution masks because everything was so bad. And here I was looking outside my window in downtown Calgary and seeing that future that I had only been told about as a child and seeing which path we had taken, not to a greener, more verdant, more just planet, but to one of devastating inequality as a result of the damage we've done. Can you talk about the origins of the Climate Disaster Project and what, what's happening with it now, what's happening with it next? Well, to go back to sort of what I was talking about earlier when it comes to information as a means of control and certainty, we have used information as a means of control, control and certainty for a very long time. It has been part of our democracy. It was part of the environmental movement early on. It was part of the consumer protection movement. It was part of the investigative journalism movement. If only we know, we can do something about things. But that is breaking down. And it is going to continue breaking down as the world becomes more uncontrollable and more uncertain as a result of climate change. It's going to uh, things are going to get worse and not better. And information is not going to be a solution to some of those problems of lack of control and lack of certainty. Instead, what I believe is going to be a solution to those problems of lack of control and lack of certainty is community. Um, because we can find control and we can provide, can find certainty um, in community. But the question is, what kind of communities are going to arise as a result of climate change? 
We can see communities where, for example, the privileged few build even higher walls to keep out the unprivileged many. We can see communities that are defined by authoritarianism and extremism, all forms. Or we can fight for a world where we are united by our collective experiences with climate change. It recognizes the inequalities and recognizes the shared experience where we come together as a people to confront the damage that we have done to our planet together. And that is the purpose of the Climate Disaster Project. Can we use these stories of us experiencing climate change to build community around the experience of climate change and through community find hope? That's the work we're engaged in as part of the Climate Disaster Project. So we teach young journalism students how to use a trauma-informed process to co-create stories of climate disaster uh, with their survivors. Um, we then share those stories uh, with our news media partners. And we then uh, investigate the common problems and common solutions uh, identified by climate disaster survivors, helping empower those communities. And the hope is that we can surface this commonality uh, more clearly, surface these inequalities more clearly, and create community and action around those experiences. What gives you hope? Well, the project gives me hope. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am engaged in work that I think is meaningful. I am engaged in work that doesn't deny the reality of climate change. I am engaged in work that doesn't deny the fact that climate change is going to happen regardless of what we do about it now. We can make it less bad, but it is still going to be bad. And I'm engaged in work that is trying to make that future better regardless of whether or not we take adequate action when it comes to climate change. That's what brings me hope. And what brings me hope are the more than 100 uh, survivors that we have interviewed so far and the more than 100 students that we have taught who, for the most part, feel the same way. I think that is a beautiful place to wrap this up, Sean. Thank you so much for doing this, and thank you so much for the Climate Disaster Project. Thank you so very much, Mark. Thanks again for checking out Scanna with Mark Laren Young. Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Howard Garrett on Strife Tokatai, author David Schiffman talking sharks, Rowena Ray sharing stories per book on salmon, and her coverage of deep sea mining, the battle to save the southern resident orcas, and the ethical treatment of octopus. And please support our pod at patreon.com. Your support helps us pay for the tech and the people required to make this happen. And the more support we get, the more we can do. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Philip Ashdown, Christina, Catherine Dodd, Solomon Siegel, John Lowe, Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Lernyoung, and Joseph Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, 
publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers and my two books about sharks for younger readers. I'd also like to thank our friends at Eagle Wing Canada, supporters of the 1% for the Planet Initiative. Please follow us on whichever social media platforms you find least offensive and share the show with your friends. And since we may no longer be on social media because of Canada's war with Google and the other news scraping sites, share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Russell Brand. Scanus created in Saanich, BC, territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Our executive producer, the always awesome Rain Banu. Scanusite and so much more, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanus theme song, Scanna, by Leah Abramson. And audio awesomeness, courtesy of Scanna's powerful new producer, Bug Lewis. Oh, my God.